Hello, everybody. Joe Patrick here. Five Stripe Final, Dirty South Soccer. Don't know exactly what we're calling this because we have a special guest that you guys will be familiar with. You've heard his voice many times, but probably not recently talking with me. I've got Josh Bagrianski with me today. We're going to talk What's about up, a little bit of Lenny Nida. What's up, Josh? That's right. It's the J-Cast. It's, it's so funny because we chat all the time, like like pretty much constantly in yes. our writer's room, you know, yes. um, just privately about whatever. And uh, But we don't actually do it in podcast form anymore we used to do it a little bit but we yeah had to... well you were you were a, you were a guest on mots at once upon a time you used to yeah. come and, and brighten up our day and uh we obviously miss you but yeah it is crazy man like uh of all the you know obviously all of us are friends and all that but you and i definitely talk the most uh and i, I feel like of i definitely you know like off air i talk to you more than uh more than Sam and Eric, just because, you know, we like to complain about the same stuff and then things like that. So <laughs> it is interesting that here we are together uh, doing doing a podcast. I think we need to come up with an applicable title, though, for when we, we do. do this. We Yeah, because I want to do these more regularly with you because, you yeah. know, you're real big into tactics. You've been doing amazing tactics write ups for us for what, a well, couple of years you, now. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy them. I, I, I enjoy them because I get to read them all like every time you make them. And, um, I figure we should do this more often, do, do little, little talks and stuff. We so, should. yeah, we'll have to figure out a way to brand this. If anybody uh, out there in the Dirty South Soccer community has any recommendations, feel free to uh, let us know how we can brand yes. this thing. Because every, everything needs a brand. It's right? all about the brand. It's all about the brand. <laughs> and I know we're going to talk about tactics and Frank DeBoer and all that. And I, before, you know, I kind of want to preface, you know, you mentioned some of the stuff I've written, Joe. I wanted to mention something that you actually tweeted Um with respect to Frank DeBoer and his tactics, and that's kind of what we'll be covering today, um, that I thought was so on point, and it's something that I really, I really think in general with with managers maybe is something that people don't understand when you basically mentioned that, you know, the issue was, you know, there was a lot of criticism that his system and what he wanted was not clear, and that, um, that he wanted to do something that was not... Uh, just not done it's not something that looks not mm-hmm. something that you know the three like, four like, three it can't work yeah exactly yeah control possession you know his style you know and, and we're going to talk a little about that today because i think and you and i pretty much agree on this to me it was quite clear what he wanted but it was one extremely ambitious uh to ask so much out of the 11 players on the pitch uh, a lot of a lot of uh, specific directives going from position to position i think probably a hard system to play um, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I think, you know, and so people, the issue with Frank DeBoer and this shows in the fact that he lost the locker room was that he wasn't able to communicate that system. He wasn't able to motivate his players, uh, to play in that system that demanded so much out of them. And then uh, as, uh, as we've, has been discussed so much, he wasn't exactly given, uh, the best personnel to do so. So I think that's the key. And then what we'll talk a little about today is, what did Frank DeBoer want? Why did it go wrong? And I think I, it's good to start that with what he wanted was clear to me and to you. I think it was quite defined. It was just the execution that was lacking. And then that's why he failed as a manager. He wasn't able to manage what he wanted. I don't think it's that what he wanted was unclear, though. Yeah, it's funny because when you think of, uh, you know, a Dutch manager who comes in steeped in the principles of total football yeah. and all these <laughs> soccer legends, a three four three is very total footbally. You know, it's a oh, yeah. it's a, it's a it's a system that asks a lot of a lot of players to do a lot of different things, and but I think that enabled to really be able to execute a system like that, like we were saying, 
you have to be able to clearly communicate exactly what you need out of your players in all these different kinds of situations. And I think that that's where Frank DeBoer's ultimate shortcoming was. And we could kind of tell just from a media perspective and anybody who's not just like me sitting in a press conference, but if you've ever heard him talk, you know, he kind of has difficulty communicating or it seems like he's struggling to communicate his ideas, you know, in an English, in English and let alone in Spanish, which I, you know, I've, I don't know Spanish deeply, but I can kind of tell through my ear. And I also know from some of our other writers who are fluent Spanish speakers sure that are like his Spanish, his Spanish is very broken. <laughs> it is. It is like, yeah. like, I guess he could speak Spanish technically, but it's not like great. And he's got uh, that thick like, Dutch accent does not mix yeah. with Spanish, man. Oh man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's where, where he had trouble. And that's why I wanted to really interested to talk to you because you coach, you know, you're, you're, you coach, well, you go into it. Enter, yeah. enter Atlanta. You, kids, what what age group? Yeah, so I coach pretty much all ages. I I have real young ones, like eight nine years old. Then I have, uh, I guess they're the O nines or they're uh, about 11, 11, 11, 12 this year. Then I coach a team of mostly rising ninth graders, and then I also coach a high school team. So pretty much, pretty much all ages, you know, pretty much all systems, pretty much all methods of communication need to be used when you're yeah. coaching those different age groups. Well, that's a great point, and I'm I'm kind of curious. Do you consciously think about how you're tailoring your message depending mm-hmm. on yeah. what age group you're dealing with, what even what player specific player you're dealing with? Because yeah. I'm sure it's well on certain teams that you know that there are players that are able to understand kind of more about the game tactically and some yeah. that need more specific instruction. Absolutely. And I think that's really in a lot of ways. And I know it's funny here. We are comparing me a youth coach to, uh, you know, Frank DeBoer. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, read into that what you will. If you think everything I'm saying is BS, I'm it's really like not a, It's like three year letter, you. three year letterman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talking to a, yeah. A, a, a youth coaching legend here. <laughs> a youth coaching legend, <laughs> indeed. But I would say, I mean, I've always felt the most important part of coaching is man management uh, in soccer. You know, I mean, uh, I think, again, people make a real big deal about systems and tactics and setups, but there, there are only so many ways to play soccer. You got 11 players on the field, they got to cover a lot of ground. You know, um, there are, you know, in Frank DeBoer's system was, uh, as we mentioned earlier, possession-based, control the tempo, control games. Um, but the thing is, if, if your players don't like you and you don't get full effort and you don't get full execution and they're not remembering what you tell them, it really doesn't matter what system you coach. So I've always found, and I think a lot of coaches have gotten the old way of coaching really gets this wrong. You know, every player every person is you you push their buttons differently right everyone's different mm-hmm. and you have to be able to build your team system what have it uh what have you while also getting each and every player to enjoy playing it and going out and playing for one another and giving their all because it you know it doesn't and that's why frank DeBoer is gone right is because he wasn't able to to man manage his players where there was there were clearly uh, a, a lot of them that just, and you could probably speak to this more, Joe, because you were there as a media member. But to me, it just seemed, you know, and I see a lot of coaches do this uh, at all levels. It just, it, he wasn't able c- to connect with the different types of players and the, you know, the different cultures and the different desires and the different lifestyles. You know, everyone is different. You have to, you have to find a way to mold your team while also connecting with everyone individually. 
And when I looked at Franco Escobar's performance in that last Columbus game, then obviously some of the things that were said publicly, it just seemed like behind closed doors, he wasn't able to do that. And that's the whether you're coaching eight-year-olds or professionals, if you can't get them to play hard, which is basically a function of uh, them enjoying playing for you, then it doesn't matter what your system is. Yeah. And, and we talked, uh, I've, I talked with Sam about this on Five Stripe Final, but you know, Frank is a guy who his, how do I say this? Um, he's just like very direct with the way he talks and you can tell he doesn't really, he's not going to change yeah. his approach player to player or team to team. You know, like he is who he is and he's going to approach management in a certain style, a certain way. That's his style and that's how he's going to do it. And honestly, I think that he expects players you know, that that's part of being a professional is that they kind of need to adapt to him. And I think that there was some of that kind of storyline, that narrative kind of happened last year that he was doing some adapting um, to the team and vice versa. And they were like kind of getting to know each other. But like, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know how much how like what the real truth of that was. Because it really. Feel, sorry to cut you off. Go, go I felt last year that he, they kind of it was more like they kind of met each other halfway, right? It's not like they went back to Tata Martino ball of playing super direct, you know, uh, hair on fire. It was more a mix of kind of going to that kind of back three shape, moving Gressel to the wing back spot, uh, but also still controlling possession. So I didn't feel that, you know, Frank DeBoer really did change his system that much last year, as much as he just moved Julian Gressel to right wing back, which means you score a few more goals because he hits uh, Joseph with a few assists um that's that's how I saw it yeah and I mean I think everybody has their own take on it like and I'm not one to say that like one you know so I think Felipe in in, uh Felipe Cardenas in the athletic the the kind of piece that kind of wrapped up Frank's tenure after uh the resignation or the mutual parting of ways had been announced I think there was a a quote in there or 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 a part in there where he said muscle memory was like like they kind of just like reverted back to whatever it was. Yeah. Um. When they had that midseason change against Houston Dynamo, where they went back to that three five two system. I mean, I think there are there are different ways you can take it. I just generally think that he was never able to really communicate clearly with his players throughout his time, and I I'll just keep going back to that 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 was kind of the crux of the issue. I think that, um, did, did Joe, did you think there was a actual dislike for him or it was just this guy, he wants me to do all these things and he, and he's not explaining it well enough. Or did you feel it was actual a, an actual with some of the players dislike for him? I don't want to say as a person, but just this is, this is too different from what I was accustomed to under Tata or whatever. Uh, I'm done with this guy. I do. I do think that there was like a dislike for him. And and I probably wouldn't have gone that uh, so far as to say that until this MLS is back tournament. I think that this tournament really exposed it was it was the perfect like bubble, so to speak, to be in <laughs> to kind of really see yeah. all of the flaws that exist within Atlanta United, like all these kind of um fractures that were happening were really exposed and i think that every, and everybody got to see them and i was i was kind of i was talking about this on one of the shows i did with sam but like when you're it, it's not good for any team when you get off to a bad start in a situation like that because then you lose the first game then you have to sit and stew on it with a bunch of people and you're, you're not allowed to like you can't like blow off steam like yeah. you normally would being around your family or whatever. so like 
frustrations are going to grow. Things are going to mount and and anything that is kind of um, a sore spot is going to just be exacerbated within the squad. And so I think that we really saw that. I think we saw the frustrations and, and that kind of thing grow as the tournament went on. And I think that that's why you saw a team look worse as the tournament yeah, progressed. Clearly. I thought I thought they got I thought it was like a, a, a pretty um, like just a progression, like a downward cycle. Of, I mean, uh, Red them, Bulls. They, the best game was against Rebels. Yeah, I think I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, I think that probably second best was Cincinnati. But again, it's hard Sad. to take everything from from that game. And I just really thought the Columbus game, even though they ended up creating some chances at the end, they could have even squeaked out a draw. You know, like that game was awful. And yeah. uh, but you could tell it was just shocking to see the team perform in that way in those first 15, 20 minutes, just not with the season on the line, the tournament on the line. There was just no fire. And I want to and this is when I want what I want to kind of drill down on. I think that part of like I think that some of the players are getting um criticism for like not giving effort in that game and I think that it, it it when you're playing in a system where you don't know what to do you don't know what you're you don't know exactly what you were expected um to do you don't know exactly what your teammates are doing there's just general um lack of cohesion in the group it's going to make everyone uh despite how hard you're working, the output, the, pr the, the productive output yeah. is going to be less. Like it's like rowers rowing as hard as they can, but they're all out of sync and the boat's going to go slower because of it. And so everybody's going to look worse, yes. even though you're not necessarily giving <clears throat> less effort. It's just when the team isn't coordinated that way, you know, things yeah, are going and, to be look rat. Look that kind of goes a little bit back to what I was saying earlier with the man management was, I mean, to your point, little Joe, it's, it's not like, I, not like players were walking around it's not like right. you know we we didn't see wingbacks recovering i mean in the end if that was a team that quit you you would have lost by more than one nil in those three matches and you certainly would have conceded more than one uh one xg expected goals uh in the second and third matches so i, I mean I, I tend to agree and that, and that goes back to what i was saying earlier was e even with professionals who are it's drilled into them to give you effort if if what they're supposed to do is not clear and uh, you know, some guys can play. It doesn't matter if they hate the manager or not. You know, they can they can do it. But I I look at a guy like P.T. Martinez, mm -hmm. who's a guy you know who really needs to be. He has an expressive style of game. You know, so you want to put him in a situation where he's comfortable to do that. And so much of that has to do with him being in the environment he's comfortable. You look at you know a George Bello, who's so young and inexperienced. And uh, I actually thought he played okay pretty well during the tournament but we discussed a few times where defensively he was caught out you know so little things like that where and the Columbus game was a perfect example of it where you're just not organized um and guys you could see in that Columbus game guys start to kind of look at one another particularly Franco Escobar and say you know this isn't working you know yeah. what, what because it, and again because I didn't see any players really quit per se uh but it's like you said Joe when mentally you're in that place and you have to go focus for 90 minutes and give effort for 90 minutes, you're, you might give effort for 70, 85, 45, whatever, but it's not going to be the full 90. If you're playing a team like Columbus, you're going to lose and you're going to be exposed uh, in an open, those opening 20 minutes. Uh, and I would also say, uh, Joe, and I, uh, sorry, I'm going on too no, long No, go for it, go for it. Those opening 20 minutes and that game in general also was a perfect microcosm of Frank DeBoer's system not working and then you mentioned the chances being created in the second half 
that happened when he changed the shape and went to three in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that game was also a perfect microcosm of not just the players not being on board, but his system not it being a bit flawed. And certainly when you looked at the fact that Caleb Porter and Columbus came out similarly to try and press and control possession and did it so much better, he just got out coached. He totally. got out coached in the way preaching what he had been preached this entire time, trying to play three, four, three, or I wouldn't even say three, four, three, but that possession control pressure system. You play Columbus, they know what you're going to do. You know what they're going to do. And, and I had an article about this uh, and then DeBoer was gone like five minutes later. So no one read it, (laughs) but Columbus was set up to beat Atlanta's system and they did so brilliantly. And once Frank DeBoer adjusted, it was too late. Yeah. And I, and I think that that right there, I, I, it nails down on something I want to talk about, which is just kind of his stubbornness. And we talked, I kind of, we talked earlier about kind of the way he was, I don't know if stubbornness is the right word in, in talking I'd about principled, the way, right? Yeah. Like sure. Yeah. Principled. Principled. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that when he's trying to implement this three, four, three, like, so it's so fun. The three, four, three has become just like the biggest talking point on Twitter. <laughs> it's it's like, and people want to like, blame the three four three for for things that went wrong or right, right. or whatever um right. to me like okay so there are a couple things a three four three can work i think in my opinion some some people might disagree with that i think it can work i don't think it was working with atlanta united yeah. and i think that atlanta united it, frank DeBoer needed to change the shape I, I and anyone who's heard me talk i've been preaching on about how he needs to go to a back four for a long time now but that's that's another story I think that, you know, you needed three central midfielders yeah. in there. That that's was the, the big thing. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, that you could see. I mean, you could see that's where Atlanta United was losing second balls. You know, there was just no chance. They, they, when they, if you can't control the middle in soccer, you're not going to be successful. And they could not control the middle with two players. Um, so I think that Frank was a little stubborn and that he wasn't going away from that soon enough or, or, or changing from game to game or that kind of thing. Um, but again, like I, I, I do understand that there are concepts he was trying to implement and trying to make the three four three work. But at some point, you have to be pragmatic. You, you have to understand what's working, what's not, and how are you going to get the results that you need to get. Uh, and I, I just don't think he was able to do that. And especially, he said after the Columbus game, he was like, "Yeah, we're not able to change shape right now mid game like they were able to do last year," which was a shocking. Shocking uh, admission. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's almost. Uh, look, I, <laughs> my days are numbered here. We can't change shape. <laughs> admit, you know, I mean, and and you know, you talk about, you know, Joe, I think part of his stubbornness. You know, you could have played that same system in a four-three-three. They played that same system in a four-three-three last year, mm-hmm. and you come into the season, and again, I, the front office is has a lot to blame here. I think because I, but you come into the season and you look at those center mids. There is not a single pairing of center mids on that roster, whether it be uh, Jeff and Heinemann or Remedy and Heinemann or you get Seto in there, whatever. There is not a single pairing in there where you're like, all right, those two guys are dynamic enough to do the box-to-box duties not uh, and a two-center two midfield system, not get caught on the ball. And, you know, you There's no N'Golo Conte. Yeah, right, exactly. And then on top, <laughs> right. Well, we talk about Chelsea is the I think yeah. uh, under under Antonio Conte being a great example of how the system can work. They had a prime, obviously, Angolo Conte, but also Nemanja Matic at mm-hmm. his best. So this is, that's that's two world class center midfielders that can, you know, do do those things. And obviously, we're talking about MLS players here, but just in terms of a player profile, 
you don't have anyone that really fits that mold. Maybe Emerson Hyndman to some degree, um, but Nagby was obviously that guy for you last year. Uh, and you come into this season, and it's just clear that there's not a replacement for him. So I don't understand why you would insist on playing two center mids when it should have been obvious from day one. I don't have the right – I don't have one center mid, maybe one in Hyndman, but certainly not two that can do everything that I need from this system. And, uh, and, and so I thought that was, that was real part of his sticking to his principles and maybe the personnel would dictate that he didn't really have to change his principles, just mm-hmm. change the shape a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I do want to kind of talk about Nagby a little bit here because I, I tweeted something out at some point. I think it was still while the tournament was going on. Maybe it was afterwards. Um, that the team, while there was a lot of focus on the lack of scoring and the no goals in the tournament being kind of focused around the fact that Joseph Martinez wasn't on the field. To me, it was really came down to Nagby was not on the field. And the team, the team could not ever really figure out how to have a buildup that was organized so that the whole team could move forward up the field and then be in a position to be able to yeah. do the things that they want to do. Frank DeBoer talks about the locking on all the time, which is the, the counter press, the high press. Um, if you aren't able to effectively build up the play and move your players, get them stationed higher up the field, you aren't going to be in position to be able to do that kind of thing. So yeah. like without him, I mean, we joked about the Nagmi replacement for a long time, but seriously, like there was no, Obviously, no player came in to replicate what Nagby did, but there was also no tactical structure to try to recreate that. Or, or like, I think, again, I think that Emerson Hyman was kind of the guy who was largely tasked to do a lot of those kinds of things. And I feel bad for him because to me, yeah. he's he's not that player and he never no. has been. He's always I been a player. a player. Yeah, I do, too. Mm-hmm. But I think he's got to play in a role that's more advanced. Like, that's where he's always had his best moments when he's whenever he's been well I've mainly seen him play with uh US uh US youth teams I've, I vividly remember a US U20 World Cup where he was really good and he's very good at like receiving the ball in the half turn and kind of turning into yeah. the, you know receiving the ball in those spaces to me he's not like a um a, a kind of one of those deep lying playmakers uh, like a and, and Nagby wasn't even so much of like a deep lying playmaker as he was he just a guy carry the could, ball from there. exactly yeah. he could carry the ball and just connect the back to the front and uh, without ne- needing to necessarily spray a bunch of passes but he could just keep it you know and yeah I think Leandro Gonzalez Pires every every Atlanta United player has always said that Darlington Nagby just makes the game easier because he's Frank just DeBoer like a guy yeah Frank DeBoer <laughs> said it as well yeah. Caleb Porter said it after the game too uh, after yeah. they beat Atlanta saying that, you know, he's just a guy who's always there. You can always give him the ball. He's not going to lose it. And so when you have a guy like that, it just solves a lot of problems. And I just never felt like that problem was fixed from. uh, And I I, like I feel like that was Frank DeBoer. Like that was kind of his um, his biggest task this season was to figure that out. And it just never got figured out. Yeah, well, in some ways, he had the perfect player for his system to do the things we're talking about. Uh, and I believe he referred to him as the best box to box midfielder in the league. Did he not uh, mm-hmm. last year, Frank DeBoer? So yeah, he, 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 he before the ter- before the game against Columbus, he referred to him as Busquets. He's like he reminds well, him of I mean, Busquets yeah. the way he's able to like scan the field and just be available. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, Frank DeBoer was very aware of what he's losing. And the thing is, you know, he, and they'll the club will have known this. Darlington Nagby's don't grow on trees anyway. It's not like you could, you know. I, I think in some ways Hindman uh, is. It, is close is close to him. He can do a lot of the same things, but in a midfield too, I mean, no way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of want to couple with what you're saying with the buildup, not looking good. Cause I do agree. 
Uh, my only slight pushback would be certainly Red Bulls. If you have Joseph Martinez up front instead of Manuel Castro, sure, you probably sure. got a Fair. goal or two. But mm-hmm. clearly, clearly that was the issue, right? Uh, was the buildup, was the buildup. And if you're trying to build from the back, right, and Frank DeBoer's playing his back three, then he's got his two center mids. And you just said this, Emerson Hyman's better high up the pitch, middle third, final third. And Frank DeBoer wants him to go up there. And then he wants his other play, but, but he doesn't want him to stay up there, right? He wants him right. to come back and in possession. Then he wants his other center mid to kind of just sit in front of the back four. So it kind of look, if you watch it on TV, it looks like a diamond a lot of the time where you mm-hmm. have kind of your back three, and then you have, whether it was Mo Adams or Renowitz or whoever, just sitting in front of them. So they basically have one center mid outlet to pass to. And then you want your wing backs typically, right, like way up the field. So then Frank DeBoer wants Bello and Lennon to be way uh, way down the field so they can expose space. So if a team tries to press that build out, they can hit that space high and wide on the long switch. And we did see them do that a few, t- uh, a few times. And then he did a few other wrinkles, like, like Heinemann usually would cover the left side, like left center mid, Adam, uh, 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 Bo Adams or whoever it was would be more like a right center mid. Um, but again, that's, it's hard to build up properly when you're at, if you don't have the right players, if you've got a back three, they've got one center mid outlet, your wing backs are often not even involved in, in build up unless it's a long ball over the top. Um, and, and the goal seemed to be to kind of hit balls that split the lines than DeBarco and PT who could check into little half spaces in the middle. Again, this all makes sense. But you have to have the guys to do it. You know, mm-hmm. you can't you can't build out of the back with with one center mid, sometimes two, when both your wing backs are way up the pitch and your both your center mids are average to above average MLS players, maybe good MLS player in the case of Emerson Hyman. Uh, so again, it's just very, very ambitious to try to build out effectively in that type of system when you don't have some really, really good players. And certainly with respect to that center midfielder. Uh, that we're talking about getting out of getting the team out of those areas that was going to Nagby. And I do think that there is a kind of um, correlation here or, or it is analogous to Tata Martino's time with Atlanta United, because when Tata Martino took over, obviously he instituted this very high press. It was, you know, it was a very principled system that he was running. Uh, for, it was a four, two, three, one, but you know, it, it, it had it had its um, benefits, but it had its disadvantages as well. And one of those was that the team would concede goals that they shouldn't. And, you know, they would get caught out, things yeah. like that. It, it took until the second year um, after they were just absolutely destroyed on the road in the opening game of the season against Houston Dynamo. He switched to a back three because he realized that he needed to be pragmatic about the situation and realize that the team was going to going to be better. And they still had enough quality going forward with the players that they had um, while they could add a, add a, another defender essentially and give themselves some more security at the back. And I think that that's a good example of a manager, um, a manager who's very principled and wants to instill a certain way of playing able to adjust. And he, it's a, it was a full change of shape, but he was able to, you know, just be willing to make that change. Absolutely. And and he didn't really say he didn't end up sacrificing the philosophy of the team and what he wanted them to be on the field. They were still considered and they were, uh, you know, an attacking up tempo. They were still all the things they were generally his under as they were his first year. It just looked a little bit different. They, he, he even admitted he was like, yeah, you know, 
I it kind of stinks that we have to defend twenty yards deeper. You know, our, our line has to be twenty yards deeper than it would be under the four two three one. But that's how it is. Yeah, um, I mean, and, basically, he that we can still win games, but we can't dominate games the way I want. And that's what Frank DeBoer never did realize. Yeah. Um, and the, the to what you to your point, Joe. I mean, it, he didn't sacrifice his principles because if you go from a four two three one to a three five two, you still have three three in the middle right uh you have a lot of flexibility with the two up front you know like and we saw how he would use uh miguel Almiron, who even if he was part of the midfield three he would morph into a left winger and attack again because you have if you have dynamic players like that you can you can uh, have that type of shape shift but you know so so he was still able to stick to his principles while pretty much just simply solidifying the back right adding adding a defender yeah making it Making added it so you, purely just adding a defender, yeah, making it <laughs> Clog, so you clogging up more holes. Yeah, could have you could have five back if you wanted. You could have Jeff sit, uh, Lorena would sit, uh, and it becomes four in the back. You know, if he's playing in front. So, but again, that that none of that was too different from what he was doing in the back four, right? I mean, he was still doing the same thing with his six. He was still wanting his fullbacks to get way up and then come back defensively. Frank DeBoer could have done that uh, if he had just switched to, uh, and I know we're saying to a back four. Uh, which, but the, the the reality is, I think the defense uh, now is one of your stronger suits of the team. The struggle mm-hmm. was the buildup, so why not go to a back four? However, I think the issue then becomes, and this is where I think again the front office comes into play. If you want to play a back four, you don't really have a left back on your roster, like a traditional left back, like fullback. You know, yeah. there's a, and this is something we talk to about all the time with Julian Gressel, who, you know, a player that can play that wing back spot. But if you pull them back in a back four, then you're, then you're a little more one V one defending, you know, you have to be a little more disciplined with your positioning. Obviously you still want to get forward when possible, but there's only two center backs in that situation. So you need to be back defensively. Edgar Castillo is not that player. George Bello is not that player. Jake Moreno is not that player. So with Frank DeBoer saying, hmm, if I want to go to three in the middle, I almost have to go to three, five, two. That is kind of sacrificing my system. And interestingly, that's what he did against Columbus. Yeah. And yeah. he saw the team play a little more direct <laughs> and they created more chances. So again, it was, you know, he went away from his principles because I, I think he realized he needed that third center mid, but he didn't have the person to go back four. And that's when you really saw that his system wasn't right for the team in the first place. But I think that might have been part of the reason that he didn't go to back four was because, yeah, Tata Martino went back four to back three, but he was able to keep his system. Whereas if Frank DeBoer keeps his system and go to a back four, you have a huge, huge, huge hole defensively at the left back spot. And then if you're going to play Barco as a left winger, you're basically sacrificing that entire side of the field defensively. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think that. Well, let, let's let's pivot the conversation. Let's start to talk about kind of where we how we think this team can line up in an optimal way under Stephen Glass. Yeah. I do I do think that we're not going to see a complete abandonment of what Frank DeBoer was doing because it just makes sense to kind of try to stick with things that the players have been doing in training to an extent. I think that um, I, I but here here's the thing. So we talk about a back three, a back four, that kind of thing. 
I would like to see a back four. And you're right. There is not a traditional left back on this team, which there wasn't really last year either, which is kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, there is like Edgar Castillo has obviously played a ton of left back in his career. Yeah. Um, but, he, but, but he was you know, not brought in to play left fullback. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but he could play but, there. You're right. But I wouldn't mind seeing someone like an Anton Walks play at left back and a back four where you're not asking him to be a left back in a back four, like in a Tata Martino system where you want him pressed high up the field and overlapping and getting crosses and that kind of thing. I think that you can play Anton walks as a left back and have him do more tucking inside when the team is in possession, because he's a technically adept player. You know, he he's, he's, he's one of those guys who's his, his, his best attributes are kind of his physicality and his technical ability is good. It's not like he stands out in any particular area. So I think that he can generally just be a, a stand in sim- play a simple left back role for you. I would kind of compare it. If anybody out there is a Tottenham fan like me, um, Jose Mourinho loves Ben Davis and Ben Davis doesn't really, he's not special in any sort of way, but he's just generally decent and he's kind of plays him. He, so Jose Mourinho plays Ben Davis says like this, like co- very conservative kind of possession oriented fullback while on the other side, he has Serge Aurier who is essentially playing like a winger. And that's what gives the team the balance. It almost looks like a back three at times, and that's what I would like to see Atlanta United go toward. That's how I think they would be most optimal is using a left back that's in kind of a possession oriented role All right. and using a left and using a straight up left winger to exploit that left side. And I think that left winger should be George Bellow. I know that. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in the slack, but I feel like he's one of the few players who wants to actually make the run in behind the defense. And really, that's the area where he's most comfortable. And I think that you will get the most out of him if you protect him with just a defender behind him so that he's not going to get exposed like we saw in that in that Rebels game where I mean, like, I don't know if that was necessarily his fault, but like, you know, in the the responsibility for that is kind of tenuous. It, right. As well, it relates if you to that tell George goal. Bellow, you have freedom to go forward. He's going to go forward. And like you said, he's a little more effective in attack. So he might even attack a little bit more if you just give him the freedom to do that. Yeah. So you bring up the Mourinho system and you're, I actually, you actually sold me a little bit there because first number one walks did play uh, while it is extraordinarily, I'd say underratedly difficult for, a right-sided player to play on the left and the back and vice versa. It's not something you see much. Anton Walks did do that at Portsmouth. He played some left back. And then also that system you mentioned with the one fullback goes high, the other one sits, it becomes a back three. That's what Atlanta did in 2017 with Greg Garza on the left and right. So he's been in that exact kind of setup in the back before. He would be on the left in this case. But we know that not only can he play left back in a pinch, but we know that experience playing the system where the other uh the other fullback is much more, and that would be Franco Escobar we assume or Brooks uh Lennon both would be a much more attacking right back so he's already accustomed to a system where it kind of morphs into a with him hanging back with the other side uh of defense bombing forward and attack so yeah. you kind of I, I kind of was expecting to push back because I'm a little more three five two uh but the fact that walks has played there before do it and that he's played in that specific system in the back before with Atlanta, I think uh, speaks volumes that that could work. I mean, it, and, but it kind of is a three. It, it It's like a, it's like a hybrid of a back four right. and a back three, you know, well, because when the right you, back goes up, right. Then, then it exactly. Three, right? yeah. yeah. And especially if you have a guy that you're playing up on the left wing, who is kind of been traditionally trained as a left back. So he's still at least has those instincts and, and 
would be aware of the you know his marking responsibilities mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So I think it could work. I, I think the issue with this is always going to be again, like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, um, is sorting out midfield in this system. You would still like let's let's call it a four two three one with Anton walks at left back, George Bellow on that left wing. Um, you would still have essentially like a double pivot in central midfield with presumably Ezekiel Barco right. playing as like a central attacking midfielder. Is that enough support? in central midfield or do you need to play um do you need to find a shape that includes oh like a jeff lorenowitz heinemann adams type of thing like do you need a more traditional center, central midfielder in there to be able to control the game i think it, it really depends on what you do with 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 the with the attackers you know because i think so there's an attacking minded setup to that which would be uh which you mentioned originally uh with barco as the highest of the three center mids. Of course, as we know, uh, Barco is just not the, t- in that case, you're, those are going to be two holding mids pretty much, pretty yeah, much. Right. Yeah. Cause he's not going to come back and defend. Um, the other option then through the middle. Uh, and in that case, you would play George Bellow on the left or whoever, whomever, as mm-hmm. you said, then mm-hmm. the other option is you're a little more conservative through the middle and you play more of a double hold system with say, uh, Remedi and Laurentowitz and Heinemann as the highest of your three center mids, who again is, uh, as we just mentioned earlier, he's a middle third, final third guy, but he's a traditional center mid that can come back and defend. And in that case, you'd play Barco on one wing, PT uh, probably on the right, Barco on the left. And it would be more similar to what Frank DeBoer had, where they're both just staying high up the pitch and your three center mids come back and defend. So that's basically, you know, we agree on the three center mid system, but the question is, are you going to be defending with all three and kind of playing like, uh, playing again, just for example, Laurentowitz, Adams, and then Hindman as the highest of the three center mids, where he's still going to come back and defend. Mm-hmm. And then you give your front three more of a free roll to go wherever they want, not many defensive responsibilities. Or you play Barco as the highest center mid, give him the free roll, two holding mids, and then have both of your one or both of your wingers with more defensive responsibility. As you said, that George Bellow would fit, uh, uh, certainly uh, Brooks Lennon. Uh, on the right would fit into that type of system. So that'll be interesting to watch because I definitely agree three center mids, but how you employ them is going to be interesting. You know, it's interesting the way soccer changes because I feel like if we were having this conversation with these same exact players 10 years ago, the the answer to this would easily to be you just play Barco as your number 10. He's like, you play Barco as yeah. your 10, oh, you yeah. have two central midfielders behind him, you know, and that's that. But as the game has evolved, there's been more pressing and there's been even more of a priority over making sure you have control of that middle part of the field with, and, and I I think managers nowadays are becoming, um, they're more willing or more likely to throw on more. I don't defensive is not the right word, but just like more like controlling central midfielders than they are to put on more like, you know, um, uh, attacking type. So right. it, it will be interesting. And I do think that it also leads to something that I th- really think that this, this team needs to get back to, especially in the absence of Joseph Martinez and without it, Arlington Nagby. I really think this team needs to become a more pressing team. We were just talking about it in our writer's room before we came on here. Um, well, I had mentioned the fact that we need to be a little bit more Red Bulls than we've been. And I feel like Atlanta right now is not a team that is going to be the Atlanta that we have been accustomed to seeing, which is a team that will control possession and, and try to break teams down and that kind of thing. I feel like this team needs to kind of 
be pragmatic and just be nasty and aggressive and on the front foot and not trying to string too many passes together before they get a pop at goal. You know, I think that they will benefit themselves by trying to win the ball high up the field and score. And that's how they can create goals as opposed to this very intricate play that goes from the back to the front and, you know, is a, is a 20 pass combination. Yeah. I think especially with, with Joseph Martinez out, I mean, because you're at the point right now where even if you accomplish and execute that methodical buildup, you want that usually means the defense is going to be recovered. So you need a guy that just, poacher in, inside the 18 that can pop up in spaces and score and quite clearly as we saw uh even from from the two matches uh pre-pandemic we saw uh Atlanta was unable to create chances in that way so I mean to me I agree I mean I think especially when you don't have uh really a natural finisher in your first 11 that you have to find ways to create chances on your own and a great way to do that is press it is high pressing and 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 just create you know creating odd man breaks uh, and, and and things like that where you can manufacture some chances to your individual quality without maybe having a natural goal scorer on the pitch. Yeah. And I think this team is set up for for a, a pressing style too. Like I think that mm-hmm. Pitsy, if you want to get the most out of Pitsy, I think you have to put him in a situation where he's going to be high up the field and he's going to be able to press. And he's um, actually pretty good, pretty good in the high press from what agree, I agree. Yeah, agree. Yeah. I know he, he gets a lot of stick because sometimes he'll get caught like walking around. But that's usually that's like those moments usually happen when like the press has kind of been broken. Yeah. Um, and, and and he's just kind of falling back into his position because he's like, oh, shit, I have to like get back into a defensive oh, position. Yeah, sure. Oh, man. <laughs> This would be totally different. Uh, that one, that one just kind of slipped, but uh, yeah, I, I've, I mean, honestly, I've had to catch I, myself I multiple care. times. Okay, Eric's running a tighter ship over there than I do. That's for sure. Um, but you know, I think that Pitti just gets frustrated sometimes, and you know, he doesn't want to be pulled further away from goal, so that he, so he just kind of walks at times. But I don't think he's a lazy player at all, and I, I think that he kind of gets mi- mischaracterized as like a um, a luxury type of player, which I don't think he necessarily is i think you just need to put him in a position where he wants to be and he feels like he can be effective and i also think that if you're talking about a pressing team it really helps to have a guy like miles robinson at the back who's going to be able to really bail you out of a lot of situations um defensively Um, now there are issues where he's not the most accomplished passer of the ball and um you know you might wish you had some more of that on the other end but i do just think that what he gives you defensively is going to cover up for a lot of um, you know, yeah, he's just going to be kind of like a uh, who's the guy in um Pulp Fiction who like comes and cleans up after the mess, uh, Mr. Wolf or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, yes. <laughs> he's going to clean up a lot of errors that are made. Yeah, the wolf. He's the wolf, bro. The wolf. Um, oh, yeah. you have anything else to add about that? I, I, yeah, we, I, we we need to talk about some of these new players coming in, but I, 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 that's kind of my yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so a couple things with with you because you mentioned PT and I think. Um, uh, well, I want to I want to agree with you first of all about the high press. I think that's the way to do it, where you're maybe not even necessarily winning possession, and it's part of it's completely personnel based. This team ha- is good enough defensively, I think, to, um, to 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 get caught out every now and then if someone passes through your press, and they have too much quality in attack. Although not Joseph Martinez, but there's too much quality in attack to say we're going to sit back and just park the bus. Right, agree. So you have to find kind of a mix of both. Say, okay, maybe we're not going to have the ball. But we're going to find a way to manufacture chances because PT and Barco are just too good of attacking players to say, look, you're just going to come back and we're going to have two, you know, two banks of four or bank of four and bank of five, and 
and sit deep. The other thing I would say with PT and press pressure and uh, to combine a couple of things you said, Joe, about how, you know, in the old days we would have just had number 10 um, and how people find PT to be lazy because they see him walking back. What you're really seeing is that position he's in as an inverted wing on the right where he doesn't have to come back defensively is the new way of playing a number 10. That's kind of the modern number mm-hmm. 10. Whereas if you are stationed in the middle of the field, you kind of have to come back. But then now we have, you know, and you look at the highest levels of like a Messi, for instance, technically he starts on the right, but he spends most of his time drifting into the middle. So that's why you see PT not coming back defensively and staying with Barco on the other side is what you're really seeing from those guys is they're inverted wingers who play centrally. And really that's the new modern way of playing a number 10. Uh, so it's not that they're being lazy. They're just doing what you would have seen a 10 do in the old days, right? With the highest center mid would stay high up the pitch and support the striker. Now you're seeing one or two of your uh, quote unquote wide attacking players doing that. Uh, so yeah. that, that's all that is. Yeah, no, I to- totally agree. And that's a great oh, point. One last thing. I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, because I didn't want to bring up the other potential shape Stephen Glass can play. Let's do it. And it's, the, yeah. it's, the, it's the shape that we just talked about uh, that uh, that Frank DeBoer went to against Columbus. That was basically, and to be honest, it made sense that he was gone the next day because it looked really chaotic. Um, but that was basically a three-five-two. He stuck with three in the back, but he added one through the middle by bringing in uh, Eric Rometty for Adam John at the half. So you have a couple. Uh, we've discussed the ways that you can play your center mids. Uh, whether you, you whether you play those two, whether you play three, whether you play more conservative three, through the middle or more attacking through the middle. Now you see that you can play with three in the back. You can play a three, five, two with three center mids. You can play either of those two center midfielder systems we discussed earlier. Um, although in that system, PT maybe, maybe sees the bench if Barco's in that too. Um uh, not your highest center mid, but that's another system you can play. And you saw Atlanta United play against Columbus, and they did look better. But either way, you've got to add that third midfielder through the center, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, if Glassy goes to four or three at the back. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. I, I think that regardless of what system he goes with, I think that what you're going, what Atlanta United fans can expect out of him is to see a team that is playing in a pragmatic way and a team that is just going to be uh, highly motivated. Before I think we that... move on, because I know you follow Atlanta United too. What are, what's your just take on? I mean, I, I like what what type of manager are we dealing with? I'm not even talking about just tactically. Just what type of guy is he? How will he interact with the players? You know, what's the sense you get from him? Just as yeah. overall everything altogether. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you and you you are not asking me about tactics because uh, I think that that's honestly I think it's one of the things that we know the least about with him because he is kind of. Um, asked to play his teams in a way that would be suitable for players to come up right. and slide, slide in the first team. So we Very don't really fair. know exactly like if he has a clean slate, don't really know exactly how he's going to lay out the team. Uh, and it's really interesting. It's so funny because I've been doing some interviews with him. If anybody who listens to this podcast network, the Dirty South Soccer Podcast Network uh, regularly knows I've been doing this Atlanta United two show. And when I started the show, I've always wanted to like talk to the manager and talk about what players he's liking, mm-hmm. you know, because I feel like that would give good insight as to like what guys we like I should be looking at, fans should be looking at, what players we might see at the first team. And he's like, I don't want to talk about. T-. He's like, I will not talk about individual players. He's like very strong on that, and I think that part of that is a learning from the club in not wanting to single out some of these young guys as right. being the ones that we need to be pinning our right. hopes and dreams on. I think we all kind of know 
um, why that is, but you know, yeah. he is, but he's very strong mm-hmm. when, when, when he speaks like that. So I think that, um, and he's a guy who has a lot of experience, you know, he's played in, in the Premier League. Uh, he's played with big clubs, Newcastle, Watford. Um, I mean, Watford's not that big of a club. But no, but that, still, that, that I mean, counts. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It, like, he's just a very, he's a strong personality, but he's a, he's a, like, he's not, he's a strong personality in that he knows who he is, but he's not going to be, um, like Frank DeBoer, where I'm former Barcelona, Ajax, uh, I am, you know, he's, he's not going to come in with that kind of mentality. I think he's going to come he's in more kind of flexible more with how he handles his personalities. I think on so. His team. Okay. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 But he's like, but he's like your classic Scottish, like, you know, oh, I love motiv- that. motivator type. Uh, he, he honestly, he is kind of the profile that I think you want in a caretaker situation. Where Does he like, need subtitles? Uh, during his interviews how how yes. scottish are we? yes oh, he does. I love in, fact, it. in fact i have misquoted him before and uh <laughs> yes. it, it was not great oh, i had i had to apologize I, I i had to give him a personal apology for uh for misquoting why because <laughs> i can't yeah i was like yeah i was I like sorry i was like I misunderstood the accent there um it is <laughs> that's he'll, he'll lay it he'll lay it on thick but uh no it's all good and um i'm i'm looking forward to see how the team looks under him i think it would be Really interesting. And we, we'll almost, get to hear him. Yeah. Uh, he'll be talking tomorrow. This okay. podcast, I'll try to get it out this afternoon or tonight. So which we're recording this on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. So he's talking to the media tomorrow for the first time. So everybody will hopefully get to hear from him. Good. Well, I, I mean, if anything, I think that goofy mix of having a, a super Scottish guy managing this type of players will be a breath of fresh air uh, yeah. to, to, to the locker room and all that. I think he's so... Uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, that's that's interesting, interesting and, stuff. And people have been asking, like, why why use glass when he doesn't know the players? He doesn't, you know, work with them uh, instead of like a one of the holdover, mm-hmm. just regular coaches from the first team. Right. And I think first of all, so Rob Valentino was one of the coaches that is a holdover. He was actually he was a he was a coach under Tata Martino as right. well. Uh, typically, clubs will have a coach that's not necessarily connected to the rest of the staff, just to kind of be able to have some continuity in cases kind of very much like this, where you're not having right. to bring in an entire new slate of people. Um, but you know, he's, he's just not a manager. Like, I don't even know what badges Rob has. I don't <laughs> know if he's, you know, he's probably never, there's just different responsibilities that a manager has that other coaches are just trying to work with players and train them on the, on the training ground. And they're not kind of thinking about the game in the way a manager would. So um, that's one of the reasons. And then I would also just say that S- Stephen Glass does know these players like he's worked with the first team before. OK, um, I want how involved is, does, does, is he, does he does he involve in the practices or what is his? So, yeah. L- yeah. Like he's essentially helped on the training ground whenever Atlanta United too. if they don't have games, if like, you know, it's like if OK, if there's nothing going on with them, usually it's like at the beginning of a season or something like a preseason okay, camp, gotcha. things like that. But, yeah, he, he's worked with these guys before, so they he won't be it will be newish. Like they've not worked with him in a lot of detail. Obviously, he's not been their manager, but it's not like he's some random guy like they, they'll know. Gotcha. They'll know Glassy. So, gotcha. um, yeah, so that kind of covers that. Uh, we do need to before we get out of here, we need to talk about some of these rumors that have been coming in because they have been coming in hot and heavy here with Atlanta United. I don't. I don't know how there is room for these guys. It seems like there will have to be some maneuvering that goes on on the roster. But yeah. um, by the way, just yeah. before you get into the names, sure. this confirms to me that Frank DeBoer 
lost the locker room, right? Because it's it, they would have they would have planned for these guys to have been coming. It's not like suddenly Frank DeBoer is gone and Jonathan Gonzalez is like, yeah, I want to go to Atlanta now. You know, like <laughs> this was always the plan, right? And 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 to mutually part ways with your manager when you you would have known that uh, that that uh, reinforcements are coming. There's only one uh, again. Just confirms to me that lost the locker room and that's why he's gone. Well, I'll be interested to know when, like, when they really like started getting on the phone, like, started trying to uh, address some of these issues. I'm sure some of them became apparent to them, just like the personnel issues became apparent seeing the team in Orlando. In fact, you know, it's funny. Darren Eels was on 92.9 The Game yesterday, and I said I was going to write an article about it, and I still have not gotten around to it. But um, it was one thing that he said that really stood out to me was that being in the bubble in Orlando. And he, he and Boca Negra being down there to see the team really gave them like a different perspective. Um, being able to see everybody Absolutely. up close and like getting yeah. actually to like literally be like. on the ground level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And being able to like visually see how players are reacting to instruction and how instruction is being given. And um, wow, yeah. that is just, that is pretty. <laughs> yeah, I'm that just is going. Damning. I, it, it is. I, I'm That's, going back. Like, imagine you're imagine Frank. What do you remember the scene when he was on his knees, like screaming with the iPad on the ground, like trying to instruct guys? Like, imagine if you were doing that, and, like your, your boss is like standing 20 yeah. yards away and nobody's looking. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody's just like, yeah, drinking water. Yeah. Not really looking. Yeah. Around. Ooh, yeah, and you can but hear I mean, everything. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. People watching TV. I mean, he would have known literally everybody could see him. No, I, I totally. Speaking of. That's how you end up with uh, Carlos Bocanegra on the sideline talking to Jeff Lorenowitz. Speaking, speaking of hearing everything, I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. else picked up on this, but there was at, at some point several days ago, um, ESPN did like a segment that was like it was like during halftime or something or before a game. And it was like kind of like a mic'd up segment. It was like check, like it was like a feature that had like all these clips of coaches um, yelling instruction or making a joke to their assistant on the sideline mm-hmm. or whatever. But it was just like a, a, a compilation of all yeah. these coaches kind of just like how they're interacting. No, I, I swear I saw I, I feel like I saw every single MLS coach. No Frank DeBoer, no cuts. And so I don't know if that's just because. He just kind of sat there, like wasn't giving them much, but like I don't, I don't think that's, that's the, true. I don't he know. It was, it was just, it was just odd that I like that I didn't see him there because I was like, I wanted to see, I wanted to see what he was trying to say, but yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, it didn't, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, like, I mean, I that, that's very interesting with the Eels. I mean, the bubble also created a situation where the overall environment of the team was, even to us watching, was was so clear when you put them around each other all the time and. Wow, what a quote from Eels. I mean, and then, uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, in Felipe's story, he reported, he and Tenorio, report, I, I, we should be including Paul Tenorio in this because he did have a big role to play in the reporting of this story. Yeah. But, you know, there there was the reporting that the team, or Pitti walked out uh, of training <laughs> the day before they left to go down to Orlando. So, um, you know, it wasn't a good vibe there. Yeah. Um, you certainly uh, were not surprised <laughs> when it went down. No, I, I well. Yeah, I mean, Sam and I talked about it on Five Stripe Final yeah, that we were just you guys like, were all over it. It was after the Cincinnati game. It was just like this is something's going really yeah. wrong here. Yeah. Um. Okay. So let's get down to the, some of these names. We don't know a ton about these guys, but um, Sebastian Perez and Jonathan Gonzalez are two number sixes, holding midfielders, central midfielders, defensive midfielders, however you want to call them. 
um, that have been linked to Atlanta United. Sebastian Perez is a guy who's been at Boca Juniors since I think 2016 or 2015, but he has not played very much. I think he only has like 15 starts. You're correct. Okay, so 2016. Yeah, 15, 15 appearances. Yeah. Ooh, that is not good. But he, but I he knew had, that I mean, off the top of my head. I did not <laughs> I'm sure. Yes. Uh, but he's been on loan, so, you know. But he, yeah, he, he's loan. played a little bit more than that. But he yeah. hasn't really broken through at Boca, which is the main thing. Um, he's a guy who's linked. Those links seem very kind of sketchy. It's from uh, Toto Fischer. Uh, that is going to move on from that. But um, the links are kind of speculative. There has been some rumors that it was like created by a Atlanta United fan on Twitter that like put it out there and then some reporters picked it up. I don't know. But he I mean, it would make sense that a guy like this would be looking for a move uh, at this point in his career. Mm. I saw highlights. Not impressed, honestly. Really? Like, yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was a bad highlight compilation, too, because it was like trying to show goals and stuff, which is not really what I want to see from a defensive midfielder. Like, right. I would rather see you need a touch compilation or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, I would rather watch like uh, just like one game, you know, like what they did throughout one entire game instead of, uh, yeah, like some like highlight reel. Yeah. So maybe it was just that, but didn't really impress me that much. He goes to ground all the time. He's like always slide tackling. But but again, maybe this is mm. just because of the compilation. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're like trying to show that off as being mm-hmm. exciting. But that's gotcha. not, not something I necessarily want from a defensive gotcha. player. And then Jonathan Gonzalez, who's probably a guy that you were aware of, I would assume. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and uh, I don't know. I mean, he, the, the thing with him is... Um, <clears throat> He he's one that uh, obviously we all know because of um, the the situation with choosing Mexico over the United States and mm-hmm. being a rel- relatively uh, well thought of young player, but haven't heard much from him since. Yeah, his I mean he was like what it was around that time when he made the decision to play for Mexico and he got capped for them, uh, I believe. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I, I, I believe around that time, I think Schalke was sniffing around him. Maybe it was some other German clubs, but I, I, I remember hearing there were some Bundesliga links for about the same amount that he's been rumored. Like the rumors right now have him coming to Atlanta on a loan with a, um, with a mandatory purchase for $10 million. That seems expensive to me. That seems like about the price that he was being shopped around when he was in his, some of his best form. And when he was a couple years younger. Uh, still a young player, yeah. obviously, but um, doesn't not sure that that all adds up. And then I think Rob Usry put out something on Twitter today saying that he thinks that uh, or what from what he's heard um, is that it's not as imminent as it is being made to uh, we're being made to believe through some of the reporting that's happened through Taylor Twelman and some other people. Yeah. And he, I, what he put put something on his Instagram saying the last dance and uh, before a recent match, which people read into. Uh, yeah, and I guess, but apparently that that while we can read into that, it doesn't necessarily mean Atlanta United is where he's going to end up. Seems like there's some competition for his signature. Um, I mean, he's a type of. I mean, just looking at his player profile, and again, I I'm not going to pretend that I've seen these guys play enough to know if there would be good signings or not. But he certainly does fit the player profile of a guy uh, that can do uh, what again what. What, I don't want to say what Frank DeBoer wants, but what a manager who would want to control the game would from a center midfield where he can play back in that six role. He can go box to box. You know, he's a good, he's a pass completer. He's a connecting type. So he's definitely a type of guy that, uh, I mean, the type of uh, center midfielder that Atlanta United has been, and he's not going to Nagby, but again, the type of center mid that you've been really craving, I think, uh, this entire season. 
Well, I don't know if you followed along, but your boy did a football manager save with Atlanta United. Oh, oh. and we put him in Europe. We put him in the bit. championship and we signed Jonathan Gonzalez. So clearly the club is just kind of <laughs> following, following my, following my lead here. How'd he do? He did well. He did really well. In fact, he was a, uh, Pretty well, like very regular starter, despite the fact that as the team got better, he kind of got surpassed in overall quality. But he was always a uh, always a seven out of 10 10 uh, performer. You know, he was he was never like never, never made a mistake, never had a bad game. He did well in my say I did not don't do Atlanta United, but he did well in my save, too. I I had I looked at him a couple of times. But anyways, in uh, football manager, in football manager, he profiles (laughs) very much as like a tackler, pretty intelligent. um, Yeah pretty he's short you know he's he's not like phys, his physical stature isn't big but he's still quick and can move around and agile yeah. and that kind of thing just like a like you said i think he's a kind of a guy who can be that kind of player that helps you control midfield which we've been talking about i think is going to be a key for this team going forward i mean it's so much just about being able to cover ground right i mean you don't necessarily have to play the way don plays but you you have to be able to be effective in the defensive third middle third some extent yeah. the final third you know and playing whatever ga- game it is uh that you play and i would say that you know this thing i always say with transfers that never look at it and say okay uh gonzalez is coming Perez is coming look at both of them and and extrapolate okay land united are in the market for uh for a cdm or a center mid. so that's the one thing that i think if you look at it we can say for sure obviously because no one knows about these rumors uh there are a few journalists obviously uh through the years that i think they have Atlanta United uh, sources where if it came out, we'd be like, okay, maybe there's something to this. But the one thing that I think you can say for sure looking at this is Atlanta United are hearing what we've been talking about on this podcast and probably seeing the same thing. And that's that you need some help through the middle. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So um, we'll just be interesting to kind of track these things. Sebastian yeah. Perez, Perez is a little different. He's 27. So he's like a little mm, older, diff- okay. kind of a different different um yeah, just like added diff- yeah, yeah i i honestly i don't either like i don't didn't know who he was until the, the name came yeah. up so just researched him but a it's good bit, to but. see they're on the market you know i mean especially sure. with with the way that the the, the preseason went where you're kind of just waiting like okay when, when are we going to be linked with like because clearly we need a center mid now if, and who knows maybe the pandemic pushed some of this back where it would have happened earlier uh but it's good to see the club realizes that they need to strengthen this roster and soon yeah which takes us to the strongest link uh, that we have. Strongest link. Mm. Which is to Eric Kubo Torres. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy. I, I, okay, this so guy. You guys know more to, say about he him de- to say he divides opinion <laughs> is an understatement. <laughs> I mean, I some mean, people, some people yeah. hate this guy. Like, it's like it's personal or something. It's crazy. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought I was just like, well, I kind of remember him from 2017. He scored the most for Houston. And then, like, people yeah, despise him. I, like, yeah. yeah. He's been, like, you know, just looking at the stats, just the pure stats, he seems relatively productive as a, as a MLS player, like at the MLS level, especially when he was playing for Chivas USA, which were, you know, his best years. Um, he was, again, he was productive striker on a bad team. Um, I think the thing with, with Kubo has been his, I think there have been some issues with maybe, I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to indict him. I don't know. But the, like was what I hear from other people is that maybe there are some professionalism issues. Um, 
especially in terms of just maintaining his fitness. I yeah, guess people have complained about documented. him being overweight. Yeah, yeah no, okay. I, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, just I mean, the little I've seen of him, there have been matches where he's clearly, clearly not not fit enough. I'm a fat ass, so I always feel bad about talking about other people not being in shape. Same. But like, uh, <laughs> but um, it is something that has been out there. So, um, and it, you know, there's some Atlantean. I, I feel like Frank was kind of pissed that he came back from hiatus uh, in better shape than some of the Atlantean I players. Yeah. But that's, oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a different story. That's that's, oh, yeah. that's that's for that's for when we have beers in front of us to talk about. <laughs> indeed, that. Indeed, indeed. Another time. <laughs> um. So Torres, it appears that he has a contract offer from Atlanta United and his Cholos offer is running down and it will essentially just be his choice whether he wants to come here or not. And he liked a tweet today uh, that was yeah. in somebody had replied to me posting the story, the report, and somebody said he Cuba, Cuba would be a good pickup and he liked that tweet. So um, it sounds like he is definitely weighing it and yeah, that's, seems, uh... seems to like it. So hopefully <laughs> he doesn't read everybody else's tweets. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's just bizarre. that was so bizarre. I mean, it really that really did happen. I mean, I think that uh, I think in the end, this one, aside from the opinion, is just going to come down to the specifics of the contract. Um, yeah. You know, if he's because uh, in theory, this guy, you know, if you're signing him to be your backup for Joseph Martinez next season, uh, that's that's not bad, right? I mean, a, a guy that that is that has scored goals uh, at at MLS level. Um, but it's probably just going to come down. I mean, in terms of the way I look at it, it's just going to come down to how much committing to him resource wise. And certainly you don't want this to subtract from, uh, what, from your, your, your center mid situation where you're looking there. And, but at the same time, I mean, I think the one thing this tournament showed is, you know, you, you gotta have someone that can fill, you know, even if just someone that can fill in as a nine and bag a few goals for you, you just need that presence up there. And Adam John isn't that, Manuel Castro isn't that, and the false nine didn't work either. So yeah. if you're not commu- com- committing a ton of resources to him, you know, he's coming on a free. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's at least a placeholder up there. And and then maybe you go to the system that uh, we talked about earlier with a high press and he, and he gets a few tapping goals for you. But I don't think that you, if you have any ambition for this season at all, and I think Atlanta United still should, um, you, you got to have someone that can at least, at least score goal, be a threat to score goals in that position. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he, I, and he is at least that. I agree. I, I think this, what this news really is, is spells really bad news for Adam John. Um, yeah. It's hard to see him. Like they wouldn't be doing this if they believed in Adam John. Yeah, no <laughs> I, doubt. I have, I no have to think so. Um, one thing to note is that Atlanta United is 21st on the allocation order right now. And he, and yeah. uh, Kuba Torres as a former MLS player right. is on the allocation list. So they would probably need to move up that list. I think FC Cincinnati is first, so you could. Oh, maybe that's look. the type of guy they'd want too. I'm not exactly yeah. sure how how the allocation system works, like in terms of like, especially in terms of what you would need to trade to FC Cincinnati in order to jump up to that spot. Well, do you think it's unlikely that that he just simply naturally falls? Uh, to us in the allocation order that just nobody, I mean, that, I again, no that wouldn't be a great sign yeah. in some ways, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, how many, no how idea. many clubs are looking to sign that type of player on a free right now? I mean, as we said, Atlanta United is in kind of a weird situation where yeah. your star striker is gone and Adam John doesn't appear up to it. So yeah, maybe, maybe you can get them without having to trade up. Who knows? Yeah, maybe I, again, I don't really have a great feel for this kind of thing. I feel like I have a decent feel for a lot of things around the transfer window and stuff like that, but I really do not know 
because you need to know so much around the league about about like what position teams are in and what they need and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Precisely. But I do think that you know Atlanta, if they want him, they will do something to make sure that they get him on the roster, whether it's moving up or staying yeah. pat or whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever it is. But I, again, I'm I'm with you that I think that it all just comes down to how many what resource how much money they're going to pay him how many years you have him I, I think a lot of people would not preferably see want to see him on a long-term deal maybe yeah. like this just year like this year maybe. next year yeah yeah yeah, yeah and I, but you know again you know let's take the rumors and let's let's uh the good news is the club seems to have come to the conclusion that most of everyone else has and that's you sorely need help in your center midfield and up front. So yeah. um, even, even if, uh, you know, Torres or uh, if it's not him, it, they're looking, even if it's just a placeholder, they're looking for someone uh, to play up there. And I think that does show they have ambition for the rest of this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we discussed, I, I still think there's quality here and you're, you're, you're headed to, into a playoff system where it's single elimination. So I, I don't think there's any reason uh, for the club to treat this season as a wash. And I'm glad they're not doing such. I agree. We've talked a lot about kind of, well, if or how the talent on the roster has deteriorated over the last couple of years. But I still think and I, I do think that's true, but I definitely still think that this team is a definitely top half of the league talent wise, if not way higher than top yeah, I mean, half. Like, how I many think- how many teams are PT and Barco the best attacker for? You know, yeah, I would right. I mean, I would argue maybe close to half of the league, which means mm-hmm. which, which, which is a playoff team. Mm-hmm. So uh, Miles Robinson is yeah. a really, really, you know, best the center back last year. Good. I mean, if yeah. we're very positive here, I mean, I think, you know, with the way that they were just getting run at time after time with your players getting caught forward for all the tactical problems we discussed earlier, I thought the back three did quite well. I mean, I can't point to many glaring and there were some, but I can't point to as many glaring individual errors uh, as, uh, as, as, as I thought I would have considering the lack of uh, success in attack. I even think some of those glaring errors, I think like Fernando Meza is a guy who stands out with the whole thing that happened in that Rebels game. Like, I think a lot of that is down to communication, too. And if you get a more solid team tactically, you're not going to see a lot of those exposed players in exposed yeah. positions and things like that. It's a it's a shameless self plug. But if you go read my film room series from the do three it. group matches, I do think the theme is that uh, if you look at the back three is is not so much. And there, there are some you, you could ask for a little more, but the the, the issue was the shape, the shape getting breaking down, you know, and yeah. and the, and then being asked to do things that uh, are difficult to do for any player. So I think it had more to do with that. And if you go back and look through that, I think you'll see it wasn't that Fernando Mesa made a t- terrible mistake on the red. Right, Bulls. right, exactly. What was that he was it, within a matter of seconds expected to cover half of the field, right, um, on his on his side, and you had a lot of situations like that throughout the tournament, which again indicate a team that uh, is not executing uh, what their manager wants them to do. And, and maybe a plan that isn't too clear that gets you into these kind of poor situations in the first place. Yeah, totally agree. I'm excited about this, this second half of the season. I feel like it's like a fresh start. I feel like there's yeah. like this, I feel like it's like a weight lifted off, you know, like you just like, I feel I like, if, if, I feel like if Frank was still here, it would just be like a weight, you know, just be like, a. Yeah. we'd a be slog. waiting. Oh God. Yeah. When's the next game? And yeah, yeah no, I, I, and I think the players are going to feel the same way. I mean, they're, you know, they're back in training already. I mean, imagine going through all that and being back at training right now. I mean, it just clearly the club saw the same thing and just said, this is not tenable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. And I think the way I, I, I hopefully you'll see the players play with, 
regardless of what uh, Glass wants to do, kind of play with that that freedom and, and happiness again. And uh, because clearly that was not the case uh, at MLS bat is back, if not sooner. Yep. Well, uh, before we get out of here, did we just want to mention that the show is brought to you all by Lucid FC. Um, yeah. That's Lucid Footwear and Clothing, not Football Club Footwear and Clothing. They've yes. got some good clothes. We were actually just we were talking about Lucid FC before we mm-hmm. did the show. Um, yeah, I see, I'm seeing their stuff all over the place. Like, uh, yeah, the, I'm an old person, so I just look at it and I'm like, is that a hashtag? You know, like I, when I first saw it, what, I thought. What, when I, start, like, when, yeah, I started, ahead, when I started wearing the clothes out, I would get asked about it all the time. They yeah. were like, I've seen that before. It's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I said, uh, we're, we're, we're old people and we are not stylish and we've been getting complimented. So <laughs> yeah. that's, that's how good this stuff is. Yeah. And I think it's, um, th- big things are on the way for them. So, um, very happy to have them support the show. You can visit them, check them out at lucid fc.us so thanks to them for sponsoring the show and josh uh, i think it's time to get out of here okay whatever you say all right so hopefully we can do this again soon thanks for coming on and we will talk to the rest of you guys later on